welcome to a very special bonus edition of Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian in Buffalo, New York. This is Brian, and with me as always across the river is Lauren from Swansea. Merry Christmas to you all. How are you, Lauren? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, we're doing a special Christmas episode today, and uh, yes. you know it's going to be a lot of fun because we're gonna we're gonna do a tag team match, a, a US UK tag team match. It's going to be you and the Great Neil Story against me and our old friend Ansel Birch, who's coming back on, and we're going to talk Christmas and holidays, and you know not just Christmas, but New Year's and. Um, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and, you know, all the holidays surrounding the time. Um, it's going to be great to have Ansel back on. Yeah, because you know what I can because do? Because you, you get to pirate jokes. I can tell pirate jokes like, uh... <laughs> hey, Lauren. Do you have any Christmas pirate jokes? Because. Okay, I got one. I got one that could be a okay. Christmas joke. Hey, Lauren. What did, yes. the, what did the pirate say when he stepped in snow? I don't know, Brian. What did the pirate say when he stepped in snow? Ooh, shiver me timbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, can I do one more? Po- you want want Christmas jokes? I, I want Christmas pirate-themed jokes. Why did Santa's helper feel bad? No, why did helpers? Why did Santa's helper feel bad, Brian? He had low elf esteem. Oh. <laughs> Where does Santa stay when he's on vacation? I don't know, Brian. Where does Santa stay when he's on vacation? At a ho ho hotel. <laughs> when he's not in his sleigh, yes. what kind of car does Santa drive? I don't know, Brian. A Toyota. And you've guessed it, listeners. Brian does work in a Christmas crack, a Christmas cracker factory. <laughs> All right. Do you want you want one more uh, you want one more uh, pirate joke? We better save them until Ansel's on, so he can appreciate them better. Uh, I'm going to tell you one more pirate joke. We're going to be too okay. busy talking stories to tell pirate jokes. I'm going to tell you one more pirate joke, okay? All right. Hey, Lauren. Yeah. <clears throat> Lauren. Yeah. What ten letters comprise the pirate alphabet? I don't know, Brian. I, I, R, and the seven C's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you make these up? Oh, aren't they great? Do you make them up? No, Lauren. What did one snowman say to the other? Oh, goodness. What? I smell carrots. (laughs) Oh. I know, I know. Enough jokes. I'm going to bring on our guest for some serious holiday fun. Can you tell the eggnog is flowing? It is. Actually, do you know what? I fucking it's hate eggnog. It's gin this side of the Atlantic. I hate eggnog. How about you? Eggnog tastes like snot. I, I've never had eggnog. You don't I want it. I wouldn't know. 
No, I, it it doesn't it, it doesn't appeal to me. No, it's not good. Sarah loves it, and my brother loves it, and neither of them put booze in it. Like most people put booze in their eggnog. Like my brother and Sarah both drink eggnog straight, and it's like, ugh. I thought it was meant to have booze in it. It is because it, it tastes like fucking puke. Well, yeah, it's like, isn't it like warmed up milk or curdled, you know, milk? No, it's cold. I don't know, it's hard to describe. It's I'm just glad it's not a thing here. You're lucky. Um, But then again, you have some weird shit over there that we don't have here, like blood pudding. Oh, that's just black pudding. That's not too weird. No, tell people what it is. All you people in the U.S., listen to this. It's like blood that's fried yeah that's fine fried blood well it's meat as well i mean it's not just blood it's pudding that is made out of fried blood do you know when we say pudding in america we think chocolate maybe um uh maybe butterscotch some vanilla no you got like blood you're Yorkshire puddings as well. That's not made out of blood. I bet you're going to start having a go at mince pies now, aren't you? (sighs) Fucking Sweeney Todd, man. I'm telling you, people eat the weirdest shit. No, mince pies as in Christmas mince pies. Sweet mince pies. Yeah, and and the whole fruitcake thing, you guys started that shit too. Yeah, we did. You know, no one eats them here. They just send them to each other. I think they send the same ones year after year. Oh, I, I would eat them. I like fruitcake. You are a fruitcake, Lauren. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but we're going to bring on our guests. We're going to bring on Ansel and Neil, and we're going to have some holiday cheer and fear because we're going to talk about the history of telling ghost stories around the holidays. How'd you like that? Was that a good pun? That was a good pun. Yeah, that was good. I like that. It was kind of like, do you remember the old radio show, The Mysterious Traveler? No. And I am the Mysterious Traveler, telling you another tale. We hope it'll thrill you a little and chill you a little. You don't remember that? And now we have to pay, and now we have to pay millions of pounds in royalties, Brian. No, it's public domain. I think, I think Mysterious Traveler is public domain. That was great. But yeah, no, uh, Christmas and holiday cheer and fear with Ansel and Neil and, um, Let me just fire up the interview box. It's the magic interview box. And I think we're going to flip a different holiday switch this time, just in honor of the holiday. What do you think? Yeah, but if it blows up, it's nothing to do with me. No, it's all my fault. So here we go. Okay, Lauren, are you ready for this? No, never. No. We have got not one... But two of the great talkers in the history of transatlantic history ramblings coming on. Our dear friend from Chicago, Mr. Ansel Birch, the golden voice. And all the way near you in the UK. Oh, folks, prepare yourself. Neil Story is back. And we are going to be talking holiday um, cheers and fears, I guess. But before we do... Happy holidays, guys. Merry Christmas. And a very happy holiday to all of you. Hanukkah, whatever you're celebrating. Um, 
Mary Mary and um, Ansel, I'm a little disappointed you're not mixing the cocktails. If only, if only. Uh, I've got all the drinks here. It's just a matter of uh, getting them through the computer to the other side. That's really been the, the big challenge of the year, I guess, for some folks. Have yeah. you ever seen the bit of like Fry and Laurie sketch um, that they do um, where one of them pretends to be a bartender and they just come up with a random cocktail? And It's not ringing a bell, but I, I've watched brilliant. all of the series, so I feel like it's, I probably saw it at some point. It's amazing. I love Fry and Laurie. So good. Now, for those of you who don't know, Ansel hosts a, a live stream that is intoxicating to say the least because he okay i could say this on this show because we are listed as explicit his show is meant to fuck you up (laughs) it at least does me yeah so kind of before we get into tonight's topic explain a little bit about your live stream uh so i um i started a project recently called the dungeon barkeep uh, it incorporates uh, two great loves, cocktails, and uh, and RPGs, uh, role-playing games. So I use a set of gaming dice to decide uh, the contents of a cocktail live on camera. And then I'll taste whatever the dice put together and uh, let you know how it is. I've actually discovered some pretty good combinations over the last few months, and I'm excited to keep that going uh, through the new year. Uh, I've even got some holiday cocktails that I'll be releasing on Saturdays, but the live streams uh, happen on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Uh, so if you want to see it and participate live, that's the that's the time to be on my YouTube channel, and that's YouTube.com/c/DungeonBarkeep. And you said you've come up with some good ones. Come on, what were the worst ones though? Oh, the worst ones? Uh, there was one, it was called The Pirate's Poison, and it involved uh, chili-infused whiskey uh, and was just absolutely atrocious. Uh, I would not recommend that one. But, uh, but you know, uh, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of potential, and uh, apparently there are something like 7 million possible combinations uh, just with the list I have right now, so uh, we'll see what we'll see what else comes up. But yeah, I think it was Pirates Poison was the worst one. And, and Neil, for me, a, a drink. Yeah. Oh, what uh, should he, what, should, what 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 what's your drink of choice? Or gin and tonic. Oh, good choice. It's, it's, it's rather old fashioned, but I, I ice and a slice or a mojito. I mean, they're they're absolutely exquisite. Uh, a, a mojito as the sun goes down. Uh, in a coastal area uh, over the sea, uh, absolutely. That that that's the one. That's the one for me. See now that you should have said like pirates uh, urine gin and tonic or something. You got to give it some <laughs> kind of creative name. Um, uh, golden earring. I can think of that. Uh, that's called the radar love uh, <laughs> cocktail. Candy's going bad. Yeah, I love uh, golden earring. No, oh, well, yes, yes, yeah, no. I, it all sounds good to me. I mean, for, as far as as far as bars go, really, for for me, I, I, if you watch what we do in the shadows, I'm the sort of Jackie Daytona character. You, you know, <laughs> I, I just kind of go with the flow, 
uh, and make things happen for competitive netball teams. Fucking Brits, man. They always got to bring up <laughs> shadows, you know? And I'll tell you yeah, something. It's not, even, it's not even British. No, New <laughs> Yeah, but the cast is. <laughs> yeah, some of it. A, a significant number of the cast. Yeah. Um, I also, it's great. I also want to oh, yell at Ansel um, because, you know, your dice game and your, your, your games have made my girlfriend go completely geeky gaga. <laughs> and Woo-hoo! I, you know, she's had to move in with the COVID because mm-hmm. just how it is. And now my place is inundated with dice and it's like creepy. That'll happen. That'll happen. The most important thing to do is make sure there's a good dice bag so that they don't get underfoot. Would you call me? <laughs> you hurt me. You hurt me. So how many sides are these dice? I mean, as a former Dungeons and Dragons player, I mean, we used to have a 20 sided dice. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you if you remember the old D and D set, uh, sure. they haven't changed much uh, since the old days. Uh, just Thank now you. they're easier to buy. Uh, so yeah, you get twenty, twelve, ten, eight, six, four are the are the denominations. So there are six. The most dangerous of all of those, if you're rolling with the spirits on the shelf, what's going to be the danger? Is it is it the twenty cider? To you in real life, or the one in in the you know in the game? In real life, the D four is the one to worry about because that's the one. It's basically caltrops. They're little pyramids. And if you step on them, they'll they'll absolutely murder your foot. Um, oh, yes, yes. I mean, but, as uh, that, I mean, I've stood on a on a Tonka toy. Now, Tonka <laughs> toy, I mean, it, it, that is an excruciating pain that only parents and grandparents and people, young kids, will understand. You know, or if you regularly look after kids, you know, any kids in your life that have heavy duty toys with spiky edges, mm-hmm. and, and your feet locate them after dark. You know, these toys get left all over the place where you least expect it, normally between the bedroom and the bathroom at night. That's Gans. I feel like Legos are the famous, like, worst thing to step on in the night. Oh. Oh, I don't know. I've stepped in cat shit in the middle of the night. That's fair. That's that's a very real danger. In your own home. In your own home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have of you course. thought about moving the litter tray somewhere else, Brian? No, I think my cat's just, you know, she likes to torment me. And she'll so leave she one, like, right in the pathway. Uh, wow, Brian, that, that's that's quite a cat. That's a lot of contempt going on there. She's, have you got some cat issues there? She, she like has learning issues. something about the cat. Need to work through with us? Yeah, Cleocatra's got issues. You know, she's a she's a queen, and uh, she she knows. Wow. Speaking of stepping do. on toys, what a great segue into Christmas, where hey. Santa brings there toys, or as Theo thinks, uh, I bring toys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Is that right? Yeah, yeah, when Theo was talking to Brian once, he uh, asked me, Is that Santa? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, you've got the voice and the presence, I suppose, that... Yes, yes, I, now you say it. If it was all white, yes, I, I could you know, see it was a good sound. It sense. was just his voice he heard. He didn't see him on the screen. He was talking to him. Oh. And then he heard his voice and said, Is that Santa? Oh, that's, that's a huge He's also asked me why I don't live in America. Oh, that's lovely. I like yeah. that. 
Oh, that, that's grand. I guess. Um, never really thought of myself as a Santa. Unless it's I like wonder... the Billy Bob Thornton Santa. Wow, <laughs> Santa. Yeah. Now, what was it he said to one of those girls that she wouldn't be able to shit straight for a week? <laughs> I'm not sure what connection that had with Santa there, ladies and gentlemen. Um, as an Englishman, you know, um, any, any clues? I don't know, but the greatest moment in that movie is when uh, John Ritter's trying to discipline him in a very nerdy way, and uh, he just, Billy Bob snaps, you talking about my fuck stick? <laughs> I don't know why. It makes me laugh every time. We're liking that. We're like sometimes a little bit of um, explicit banter can be quite a lot of fun. And that's holiday tradition now, because anybody who's ever had to deal with extended family holidays, they know this is the uh, tis the season to like you know really want to mess people up. But uh, to swear and drink heavily. That's not what we're here to talk about tonight. We're here to talk about. The strange phenomenon of holiday ghost stories and where they came from and why they exist. And there's going to be a special treat at the end of the episode. The great Ansel Birch is going to have a Christmas ghost story. And uh, you get to hear one of the great voice actors of America present a holiday ghost story. Oh, that's... That's very uh, complimentary. I'll take that and put that on the on the website. And we shall all look forward to it as well. It's great. I must say, uh, Ansel, for people that cannot see you, I don't know whether are we are we going to be seen to, on on the podcast. I don't know. No, but just listen to. If people are a fan, and I I, I don't know whether this has come up before, you, you all know the the Black Adder thing, <laughs> you know. He's Very much. Got the beard of red, red beard. Uh, what was it? A red beard rum. The pirates. <laughs> I'll Played take by that. The Tom Baker. Yeah. Oh, marvelous! I'd wager those hands have never been torn off by a shark. <laughs> You've a lady's bum, you have. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's Perfect. a great episode. Uh, it is, and you have that beard, magnificent, oh. in its sheen and colour and style. Luxurious. Have you always had that beard before the lockdown wonder? I did. I've, I have actually had a beard since my junior year of high school, no. uh, in some capacity, and I've not seen my upper lip since that year. Uh, I've changed the, the beard configuration around for different plays and things, but uh, the mustache has been constant wow. since then. You're with Have me. You plaited yeah. it and, and put like tapers in it that makes it get on fire. Yeah. You know, I've tried that, and it turns out it needs to be significantly longer than you'd think for a good plait. Yeah. Mm. Attachments, methinks. Have you yeah, ever tried I... setting fire to anything attached to you, uh, <laughs> Missy? You know, and Lauren, a- anything on fire ever close to you? Any sparklers? Even you sparklers? Do they? Do yes. They, are they excitement in Wales? Is that a power supply in Wales? Wonder. Sparklers. We had a sparkler party for um um for fireworks night. The... Did you? Mm-hmm. Did you do indoor Just... fireworks as well? No, no. Um, Corey doesn't like fireworks. Well, indoor fireworks don't go bang. I, I'm surprised by the presence of indoor fireworks. That's a thing I've never heard of. 
Have you never? Well, it, I don't. I'm, I mean, is it something that faded out? Maybe when I was a, it was in the seventies. An indoor ah, fire so used to the... come. It's like a, a, a cardboard board, and it had a selection of little foil devices on it. So one you would set light to it, and it would emit a green flame and sparks that would come off. Another one, uh, it would throw out little little sparks. Another was a, like a sparkler. And another one, you set light to it, and it turned into a... It was called the, the serpent. And it actually span out, and, and, and mm-hmm. it was on fire. It turned into something that, well, it looked like a, a large bowel movement all over your table. It was quite remarkable. We all had those... We had all of those uh, growing up here in the States as well, but they were never approved for indoor use. No, no. You, 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 you limeys are weird. Yeah. Well, Although it was the 70s. I mean, the we English still had long okay. <laughs> I mean, the Welsh are the ancient Britons that, mm-hmm. that the good clean invaders chucked out of a beautiful country and condemned them to a world of mountains, damp and Barry Island. Which I think they're still mad about, to be honest with you. Some can be quite angry. I wouldn't upset the Welsh because I admire them as a fearsome fighting race. Exactly. I, uh, a wonderful language. And people like Tony Hopkins, wonderful actors with wonderful voices. Richard Burton, when you get these wonderful voices. I like that. Tom I Jones. wonder if you broke up all of the, you know, the greatest actors of the last generation and this generation, how many of them are from Yorkshire and Wales? Because I feel like it's a disproportionate number. That's a good point. And, and the voices, of course, of people like Tom Jones, Shirley Bassey. You know, it, it's there. There must be something in the in the Welsh climate and the intonation, because not of them, not all of them are uh, Welsh, uh, ancestrally Welsh. Mm-hmm. But there must be something there that, that that the combination of weather and and the traditions that are all around. What do you think, Lauren? Do you think it's a, a tradition in Wales to to sing and perform? Yeah, we're to, singing is part of school life from when we're very little. We can all. There's sing. also a, that rotundity of Welsh vowels. I wonder if that's uh, part of it. Oh, and Lauren knows them all. You know, Lauren speaks fluent Welsh. Oh yes, we've 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 heard her on occasion speaking Welsh, and, and but I'm not sure that we've ever heard singing in Welsh. And as it's Christmas, wouldn't it be lovely? Ooh, a little song in Welsh. We could somehow trick Lauren into singing in Welsh. Yeah, or she could sing something like, even like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or um, it's a short Christmas song. Yeah, a little, Twi- just a couple lines of a Christmas song in Welsh. Yeah, that'd be nice. Oh, look, you're on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can sing. Yeah, oh, I'm not singing cool. tonight, though. Just Why a couple not? lines. <laughs> In Welsh. Copyright. Rudolph the Red Oh, Nose there is that. Yeah, well, Come we on. can make up Copyright. some words. No. Yeah, we'll make up words like, you know, the holidays are all about ghost stories, so everybody shit your pants. Sing that in Welsh. I feel like that'll lose the whole Welsh language aspect. No, I, I can sing in Welsh. I have sing, sang in Welsh, and I've competed in singing competitions in Welsh. Have you? I have in the Ice Dead World, yes. Congratulations! Oh, that's that's they a, compete that's a for a thing. big chair. No, that's poetry. Yes, they, it is. Yes, but there's that's Eisteddfod as well, is it not? Um, there's two Eisteddfods. There's Eisteddfod the Earth, and then there's Eisteddfod Genedlaethol Cymru. 
Gosh, I lost half of that. I'm sorry. It's therefore getting lethal, Cumbria, is the one that Heard win. You know the story of Heard win? Yes, yes. And and the the poetry of light. It was about light. A cadaver, yeah, yeah, the empty chair. That's it. Yeah, it was draped in black because he was in the First World War. He died before he could come back and claim the chair. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful story. Beautiful. But one day, <laughs> I hope you will grace us with a song in welsh and you might want to re- record it before this goes out you could add that in i might, I might find i might somehow get a copy of one and put it on uh, as an easter egg there you go as, there's your there's your intro music for this one as, as if as if she's singing it live and it's all and then you could have a few goes at it as well it'd be great Seriously. and then i'll tell everybody it was actually me so you won't have to feel the pressure <laughs> okay okay i'll sing you one that i sang for a nice dad for is that okay yeah yeah absolutely okay Right. Sorry. There is more to that song. Wow, that was awesome. It was beautiful. (laughs) Now you see, now you should sing more often. Because all joking aside, gentlemen, was that a lovely voice? That was 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 phenomenal. Can't ask me to sing anymore because I've done it. Yeah, there you but, go, you, you know, did it. Yeah. yeah. I gotta tell you, the language sounds much different sung than spoken. Mm, doesn't it? Yeah. English, you know, sounds the same spoken and sung. Um It's but it's the exoticism of hearing something sung in uh in some foreign languages. Um it, it because we don't really understand what's being said, it, it we it relies on uh, the melody, the tune, and and the voice behind it. So some accents to our ears will not sound very pleasant, even when they're sung. Others, you'll you'll get the, these incredible uh, lilting voices, and it comes back to our point about the melodic language of, of the Welsh and the, and the Welsh in song and performance on stage. And that's all joking aside. It, it is. It was a delight. All right, now, Ansel, too, it's your turn to sing. No. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> we better start talking about holiday ghost traditions. Now, we'll start, obviously, with, with Christianity, because I'm assuming we're all from Christian upbringings, even though, you know, I know, Neil and Lauren, you're probably both C of E still. No, Lauren's Druid, I think, being Welsh. It's is, is that right? Church of uh, of England in Wales. You know, I, of course, rejected religion many, 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 many years ago, much to the dismay of of my mother. But, um, Ansel, what's your uh, background? So I actually grew up in a a religion called Baha'i, which is um, the most recent sort of large world religion um, that was born out of... um, a tradition of progressive revelation. So the idea was that all of the former religions are correct, but they're like updates, like a magazine with multiple issues. Um, 
and uh, it's a it's a very beautiful religion focused around world peace and um, you know equality and and it's it's a really beautiful religion and I um I personally never felt that touch with the divine and so I fell out of the faith when I left home basically but you know it's a it's a wonderful tradition and um, you know because. Because it does have that sort of interfaith intersectionality to it, you know, we still we still celebrated Christmas with our family who were still Christian, and we still, you know, understood and appreciated the traditions and, and stories behind it. Um, but yeah, so the the actual, you know, traditional celebrations for the Baha'i faith are usually in the spring. Uh, so that's that's when the that faith does their. Um, gift giving and new years and, and all of those um, sort of more significant uh, religious celebrations happen in the, in the spring for their, for their calendar. So they're like all about the better really weather. Calm soul, Ansel, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> now, is, is that I've been because accused you're of that before. with us or is that because do you meditate or do you, do you find that there is some part of the old, your faith that's with you or, or do you find that in in life you like to just keep a calm perspective on things probably a combination of all those things to be honest with you it is uh, it's a very calm meditative faith and so you know growing up in that was uh probably very formative um but you know my parents were also very you know even keeled and uh that that's really helped me find that that sort of cadence in a lot of my life as well Oh, I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, see, I have a uh, meditator. I've been meditating daily for well over 20 years. Um, but I mm-hmm. come, from, I meditate out, but I'm much more, you know, I'm more of an atheist, but, you know, I still meditate daily because it's all about relaxation, calmness. and. Mm-hmm. But I want to Mindfulness talk, is good, pa- is good practice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very much um, a fan of and inspired by Taoism. I don't believe in, you know, let's face it, I don't believe in the way and that everything's connected. That's bullshit, you know. But the philosophy behind it, I love. So Christianity, though, which is, you know, basically where most of our listeners' background comes from as well, is a blood cult and a ghost religion. Uh, Don't know what anybody says. I mean, it well, really well, is. You can't deny it, but they, <laughs> there is certainly the, the drinking of, 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 of the blood uh, in, in, in the communion, uh, and, and the Holy Ghost is, is, is part of that faith. So and yes. the resurrection of Christ. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. it's a ghost religion. I mean, it really is. Hot takes from Brian. Yeah. There you are. Send your hate mail in to Brian. Yes, he called Christianity a blood cult and a ghost religion. Yeah, but like in a good way, in a, in a well, positive I, way. I would hope in a, in a, in a good. It, 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 they are factors of it, you know. But but it's not just a cult. Uh, what, what about in Wales, Lauren? Do do you feel that religion is still quite strong there? Yes, um, I would say so. Um, uh. Mostly, we have chapels here as well, which was which is a lot of the Welsh speakers would go to chapels rather than churches. Um, but I, I guess it's different for me because I'm involved with a church with bell ringing, or I was up until COVID. So, 
it's yeah. different for me because I see other sides of it and I see other the different parts of the. I mean, I, I grew up. I was born in a city of Norwich. I didn't. I wasn't there very long. It was, I was born in the hospital there, and I grew up not far away. Yeah, but the city of Norwich that I've known all of my life in Norfolk, in England, has the greatest concentration of churches, medieval churches, in Europe. It also has a cathedral. And then on top of that, you have chapels. You have something called the House of Zor, which is a small religious group. There's uh, uh, There are small religious communities in the city as well. The Salvation Army. And there were, and I, I, I guess there might still be a few left, what they used to call tin tabernacles. And these were little t- tiny chapels uh, you'd, you'd have rows of terraced houses and it would be a little meeting house at the bottom of the row of terraces. And they would, or maybe four rows of terrace and they would all go down the, the tin tabernacle on, on for regular services. But Norwich is quite famous for its religion. I mean, two of the greatest religious women in history ever, Marjorie Kemp and mm. uh, Julian of Norwich, were from Norwich. And all shall be well. You know, so you Try to say that in Middle English. Yeah. Well done. You two are um, from a country where the church is the state. Ansel and I come from what is supposed to be a secularization, but which is far, far more of... Um, how should I put this? Well, Ansel, give me a nice way of putting this good euphemism uh uh heavily influenced Uh, heavily influenced by religion um we're we're a country of religious fanaticism even though we're a secular nation supposedly well i I think that's covered by the general view uh, of your country that you are lawless ex-colonials you see the minute that you got rid of the good clean british influence on america um, it all went well, you know. I mean, if you if you don't if you get rid of the people that regulate your country in a fair and just way, <laughs> I will stop there because that is a. <laughs> I think you should stop there. It, I think you should keep going. So I'm, I'm not the one who gets I, all the I hate. Think, I'm quite sorry that we burnt down your first White House. You no, know? I just I think it's. You yeah, know. Sorry, we drove <laughs> your king just... crazy. <laughs> but you are I just want tea slowly. time and strong currency back. That's. that's... It's, I don't know, I, I just religious fanaticism just is something that happened here hundreds of years ago, and so it's it's something that we've got out of our system, so that's why it doesn't happen here anymore, because we've yeah, been there, we've done that. So, yeah, if you think of history cyclically, I mean, it, it might be that the U.S. is due for an iconoclasm. Oh, God, I hope not. It's, <laughs> I really <laughs> hope not, but, too, but I think he's right, I mean... I just, I just wish people would. I mean, it might sound very, very schmaltzy at Christmas time, and all. I mean, I'll, I will jest about colonialism. I mean, that's awful, and civil war is awful, and and I just, as long as faith doesn't oppress people, uh, I think just, just getting most people are honest, good folks that just want to get on with their lives, and 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 to have a, a community. That, that just cares about each other and you don't it doesn't it shouldn't be regulated or ruled by some uber force 
it should be regulated by kindness. And that's really naive, I know. But do you know what? That's what I... It's Christmas. And that's what I... I, I try and believe that. Well, and anthropologically, that's what faith is for. It gives yeah. us a common uh, code of conduct. It gives us a common understanding of the universe. allows us to have a, uh, a basis for conversation and... Uh, a place and time for regular meeting to yes. make sure that we're all on the same uh, ground. Not just on the same ground, but to make sure that, you know, if somebody doesn't turn up to a meeting or just a, a get-together, a community event, that person might just be missed. And, and people might say, are they okay? And, and go and, you know, knock on a neighbor's door mm-hmm. to check that the, the neighbor, and that neighbor will not be in fear to open their door to to their neighbor, you know, inquiring if they're okay or not. And I think in in the 21st century, we're discovering new uh, models for that sort of thing because our communities are no longer bounded by, you know, who is within walking distance of your home, who is within hearing distance of the church you all share. Um, we're discovering what, community means in a non-physical bounded sense very true um, and i th- i think that's part of why we're seeing such upheaval in religious traditions as well is you know we have to find out what what in this context gives us the, that same sense of community identity and safety quite right quite right i know it's identity it isn't it community this episode took a weird turn it did i was gonna say <laughs> i know what causes it Ghosts. There we go. I, I, we got to get back to ghosts. Um, I'm going to start with Neil. Um, where do you believe the tradition of holiday ghost stories began? I think it comes from a, the story tradition, the storytelling tradition, from its earliest time. When winter draws in, the nights get long long periods of darkness so in times like that people do tend to get together to share that warmth the more people around the same fire the bigger the fire it can be the warmth of body warmth sharing with each other and if you stare at a fire if you've got an imagination no matter who you are you will see shapes in the fire in the shadows, all around you, and the shapes of all the people gathered around you. And so it's going to inspire stories, storytelling, and maybe different types of story would be told, maybe reflections on the year, the experiences of the year. But no matter who you are in, in that circle, if you're not able to, you know, you live just an ordinary life, you're just working like anybody else, working through day to day, and particularly if you were a bit older and you had to be reliant on a little bit of support uh, from your family and your neighbours, um, people would look back to when they were more active to tell stories. And the stories that would draw people in most of all would be stories of ghosts and legends and folk tales, folklore. 
that would maybe give some of the audience uh, a little bit of a shiver uh, down the spine or even give them a bit of a jump. See, and I was thinking, and um, I don't know, Ansel, what do you think about this, that the holiday tradition of ghost stories is, A, you've got people gathered, more family around each other for the holidays, and maybe they weren't meant to even give a shiver, but meant to be positive in in and of their talking about maybe those in the family they lost that year and how they're still with them. Because the family's gathered for the holidays, then they start talking all this happy horse shit about, uh, you know, Uncle Teddy's, uh, you know, he's doing okay because uh, he visited me. Do uh, you think I'm way off base? I don't know that I would say you're way off base. I think the, based upon the literary tradition that I studied, and and I, um, you know, I, I sort of started with Beowulf and and Anglo-Saxon texts in my studies. Um, I think the the tendency to tell stories of death and um, loss in the winter does make sense. It makes sense as like a continuation of the association with winter and the the time of uh, of loss. You know, if you think of spring as birth, summer as growth, uh, autumn as reaping, you know, winter is when when everything becomes thin and lean. Winter is is the time of death. Um, we use winter as a metaphor for the the last days of a person's life, the you know the the ending years. Um, that metaphor is is very very deep. So I I shouldn't wonder that winter time inspires and engenders this connection with the with death and the the stories of the beyond. But I think you're absolutely right, Teddy. That it. it it probably has a lot to do with these longer periods indoors around the fire with the, the jumping shadows that would haunt even the largest houses in those early days uh, or homes, um, structures. Uh, but, you know, when we look at, at literary tradition, because so much of that doesn't have a, a mooring in the time of year that it would have been told, I feel as though there is a greater um, presence of snow and cold in these ghost stories and stories of death, um, which may not necessarily necessitate them being told in the winter, but certainly indicates that, you know, if that's the oral tradition, what are you going to be pulling on if not the things that are around you the most at that time of year? So, so, yeah, I think it stands to reason. point there, by the way, Ansel, that, that you're, you're talking about the, the cold and, and, and the weather, and that, that's a very, very valid point. And if you think about, I don't know how, how well it's received in America, but particularly over lockdown, what they call the Scandi Noir, Nordic Noir, uh, they're uh, the subtitled. Uh, murders, uh, murder detective series like like The Bridge. Hmm. Uh, they're absolutely fantastic. And if you think about it, in America, you had your Fargo, for example, Insomnia, the film. Mm-hmm. When you look at the the ice and the snow, it's a really powerful setting for murder, 
crime investigations, the the noir of 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 the light and the dark and the cold adds so much to 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 the the telling of a dark tale. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting you bring that up. Um, <clears throat> the literary tradition, because you know, even a story that you don't think of as uh, what we're discussing, holiday ghost stories, or even a ghost story in general, but you know, Frankenstein, where does it open? In you know the Arctic mm-hmm. snow, I, I mean that, and that essentially is a story of death. And you know, she uses the cold and the snow to open the story. That's a good and close it. And Lauren, why'd you go silent on us? What do you think? Um, I think as well, if you look at when Frankenstein was written, it was written in the summer where there were freak snowstorms and very bad weather. Yeah. So it, it, I guess the weather, it plays an important part in how these stories are told. I think it's also interesting uh, to build off of that. Uh, weather in, in Britain especially, winter is the only really dangerous season, um, with the exception of yeah. going out to sea, which has its own tradition of ghost stories and spirit stories. But, you know, I don't think it gets dangerously hot in any parts of the UK I'm aware of. Um, no, not over whereas the cold will absolutely kill you. Yes. See, yes, and Ansel will. lives in Chicago where every day is dangerous. It's always bad. <laughs> Why do we live where the air hurts our face? And I don't even mean the gun violence. The um, it's the Windy City. Well, it's yeah, it's known as the Windy City. But what people don't realize is, you know, I live in Buffalo, New York. I'm from a city that is constantly made fun of and referenced as the snow place. When people hear Buffalo, they think it snows twelve months a year. They think, you know, there's an old kids in the hall sketch that you know Americans will show up to the Canadian border with skis in July. You know, that's Buffalo. But what people don't realize is Chicago, their winters are more harsh than Buffalo winters. And their summers are notoriously harsh. I mean, Chicago's the city that has more deaths due to the heat in the summer than any place in the country, including California, including the deserts, including, you know, all the places you think of as particularly hot. It's Chicago that does it. So I mean, it's. I know that statistic, but I believe it. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, the extremes here can go from 105, 110 degrees in the summer to negative 40, negative 50 in the winter. It's 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 pretty extreme. And if your heating or cooling capacities in the on the home you live in aren't up to snuff, yeah, we we lose a lot of a lot of folks to to extreme weather. A lot of seniors. Oh, it's hot at the moment in in the states. Is it sort of temperatures have you got over there? Is it like summer? It's no, it's still, it's still quite cold here. <laughs> in, so it's universally, it, it is genuinely cold because I, I I don't know what it's like in the states. Whether you have sunny Christmas days. Well, in it, I'll give you mine in Buffalo right now, um, which normally at this time of year we would have several feet of snow on the ground and you know very cold we're having an abnormally warm winter so far mm-hmm. um it's probably 40 degrees out right now when it's usually at this time of year 10 wow um 
global warming well, doesn't exist, crazy. right? Um, yeah, it's thirty. It's thirty-three here in Chicago, which, for those of you on the Celsius scale, is is fifty-six. My goodness. Yeah, Ish. and what's it normally there at this time of year? Oh gosh, uh, yeah. 10, 10, 12, yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't, recently, it's not been getting really cold until January. So we've not been getting the heavy, heavy snows that we used to get. Um, but, you know, December, we can usually count on having a decent falling of snow um, around Christmas time. And we did get a dusting today, so we are we are a little did bit on you? track. You've yeah, actually seen the white stuff this year. Oh, yeah. Ooh, this is our third dead. snowfall of the year, but I think it's the first one that had any accumulation. Or we, did we've had one. Very gently. Yeah, we've had one, and uh, it accumulated for about a day. But but on the other side, our summer this year, you know, Buffalo summers average around 85, 87 degrees. This year, we broke 90, I think it was 14 days in a row. When in the history of the city, it's only been above that temperature three other times. So, I mean, you're talking, you know, it's extremes. You're talking 10 to 15 degrees warmer than usual year round. Mm -hmm. It's scary. Um, So we're all going to be part of ghost stories. (laughs) Is is Lauren still with us? Weather like in Wales. Rainy. It's raining. Yeah, it's raining. <laughs> Just for a change. Well, we in the had land thunder of... yesterday. Uh, <laughs> go on. We had thunder and hail yesterday. And then rain. Uh, and what's the prediction for the rest of the week? I rain. I don't know. Rain with a slight chance of COVID. Oh, <laughs> That would require going outside, which none of us want to do right now. No, <laughs> no, no. We're in, we're in full lockdown again from the twenty eighth of December. Wow, oh, are you really? Yes, we've got four tiers now. It's got really bad. Um, it's not a stronger. It's not a stronger form of COVID. It's um, a, it's a new strain that is easier to catch, and it moves quicker. Yeah. <sighs> Disconcerting. You know, I kind of wish that I could, like, get into a time machine and go 100 or 200 years in the future to read the story in about 2020 (laughs) and the year of COVID. It's going to be a thing. It is a world-changing year, but to get back to our topic, um, Native American, and I don't know how much Lauren or Neil will know about this, um, but, you know, Ansel and myself both come from regions that were heavily native american regions and most of the uh yeah. most of the places in my town are still named with native names you know Seneca, tanawanda chictawaga sigajakwita you know mm-hmm. and their traditions of ghost stories you know from what we can find in the written record far you know go past the western typical western traditions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, from what I've read, and I don't know, you might know more than about this than I do, Ansel. I, I don't remember them ever being really associated with holidays so much. Well, Native American traditions, as I as I understand it, are less calendrically minded generally. So, like the idea of a specific holiday, um, I think would have been a, a sort of a reach 
for most of their traditions as they were more and again, this is speaking of, of you know, many nations of people as though they're one homogenous thing, which is absolutely not true. But uh, to speak in generalizations, I, I don't think that the majority of the um, First Nations people would have would have had a basis for which to set a specific holiday. Um, that said, I mean, there are many seasonal traditions that... Um, you know, uh, come with specific stories, come with specific traditions and, and observances that would be based around, you know, maybe a, a celestial event, like a like a yearly solstice, similar to the early um, earlier traditions, where most of it is based around, um, you know, events of the sun, events of the of the stars, the moon, depending on you know which parts of Europe you're from. Uh, and I I think that based on what I know of of native traditions in the Americas, which is broad but not very deep. Um, yeah, I would I would be surprised to find a tribe or people that doesn't have a winter observance that is very special to them um just because it is such a, a huge time of flux and change um but uh but i wouldn't i wouldn't know what any of them are specifically and then it leads us you ready for this ansel you get you see since we're on camera All right, segue time you're going to appreciate this you're going to see the smile go across these friggin uk faces <laughs> And then it goes to Dickens. Yeah. Oh, you see how proud they all are of Dickens? As well they ought be. Yes. But is it possible? Say, if nothing else, he gave I us the Muppet Christmas literature. That's true. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. That, that is the envy of the world. Yeah, and I was going to say, is there... Is it possible to discuss holiday traditional ghost stories and not talk Dickens? I mean... It's the most influential, the most ripped off, the most overdone. Okay, first off, I don't think I can forgive you because if does anybody remember the rich little Christmas Carol? No. no don't look it no. up. And I love Rich Little. Don't look up Rich Little's Christmas Carol. Okay. It's, Christmas it's Carol, Carol is the best one, the only one anybody should watch. The Muppets, of course it is. Yeah. Everything's good with Muppets. Ah, mm. I kind of like the uh, the adaptation Scrooged. With Bill Murray, that was a great one. Oh, Bill Murray one, that one's fun. But I'm assuming Neil is the Dickens guy of the group. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a massive literature ex. I, I'm a historian. I mean that that's what I do. And you're a proud um, limey. Well, well, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, but 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 not afraid to to laugh at, at my own culture. Laugh at myself. <laughs> mm. um, I always think that so, should be yes, a phrase I, brought I, I back because it's a positive phrase. Yeah, uh, I, I, I will enjoy it. I mean, the thing is, for some people in Britain, it, it, Dickens is taught in schools. Exactly. Which means it is. it used to be overanalyzed, analyzed to the nth degree, and it puts people off. And it makes them shut off to literature when it is being... I mean, for example, Laurie Lee wrote Cider with Rosie, a fantastic look at country life. It was on the syllabus at one time, 
for literature in the UK. And Laurie Lee went to a night school under an assumed name to study Sidey with Rosie, his own book. And he failed the exam because he failed to understand what the author was getting at. And that's the man that wrote the book. And this is the problem that things get overanalyzed. So that's why it puts people off. Overdramatized, too many adaptations uh, can spoil things. And a bad adaptation can put you off too. So if you strip it back to the days of Dickens, this was a man that went, he toured the country. He was a live act performer telling tales by candlelight. And his most popular tales, yes, they are the tales of the, the pauper people and people with disabilities and, and this very uh, landseer painting view of things at times. But also he had a biting wit, a biting satire, and he revealed many of that the hardships of Victorian society too. But sometimes people will see it as a quite a twee thing but if you look at it as it was viewed at the time he was reaching people sent the victorians were very sentimental so he's reaching out to that but as a, as a master story and if you just look at the creation of a christmas carol uh, and the content of it then the idea of past present and future and even the clever way it kind of turns around that you can. You can't change the past, but you can change the future. That's a blooming good message, I think, for Christmas. And, like you said, it, um, it things can be overanalyzed, over-dramatized, overdone. Nothing that's been more overdone than Christmas Carol, and it survives. It's true. And it's still well, loved. I think Jane Austen's Emma is getting uh, quite close to that Pride and Prejudice. They're uh, getting a little bit uh, little too often, I think, when there are some other really great books out there that deserve to be made into some decent films. Yeah, like Pride mm-hmm. and Prejudice and Zombies. I, they did that one. Did they do it into a film already? I believe so, yeah. Oh. Yeah, they did. <laughs> okay. Whereas the film for Christmas... And that has the true Christmas message, in, in my view, as a serious fan of literature, is Cockneys versus Zombies. I was going <laughs> to say Die Hard. <laughs> yeah, that Die Hard has a message, Cockneys versus Zombies. If you haven't seen it, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, uh, that is Christmas gold. Okay, once you've finished your, your two two Ronnies. I mean, the thing is, if you, you've got, in Great Britain, you've got a Radio Times, right, from the 1970s, and you were, or, or about 1979, 1980, and you've got a nice vintage copy of it off eBay or somewhere. You open it up and look at the schedule, right? No change with this Christmas. I can assure you, two Ronnies, uh, lit, uh, you'll, you'll get um, Morecambe and Wise, uh, possibly a, a Paul Daniels magic show rerun. Uh, it, it, you, it, it, it's it's pretty bad that there really hasn't been enough decent television that people love and has endeared itself in 40 or 50 years now. Oh, it's the same because, here. You know. I mean, they try making new Christmas specials a couple of years, and they try remaking Christmas classics every couple of years, and they fail. 
because the reason you're remaking something that's a classic is it's a classic. You don't need a new adaptation. I don't that's need cool. a live action How the Grinch Stole Christmas when I got the wonderfully Boris Karloff narrated Grinch Who Stole Christmas. You know, there's no... You're, you're not going to beat that. No. Yeah. You're and with the exception of Dickens. Because when they remake that, sometimes they do become new traditions. The movie Scrooged, for example, that I mentioned earlier, is played traditionally now. That is considered a Christmas classic now. And it's one of the newer adaptations of Dickens. The Muppet um, Christmas Carol. That's a beautiful film. It's fun. You know, we love the Muppet messages. And I love films. It's... Sometimes you just got to kick the shoes of being grown up off and just enjoy a kid's Absolutely. Film. You know, you don't have to have kids with you. You can have it as a, even if you live all on your own, get a nice big mug of hot chocolate, you know, with some marshmallows in it, as you do in the States. And just, just well, watch I turned film. Lauren on to a Christmas special this year. Yes, he did. It was awesome. If, and it Ansel might know it. Neil might not. Um, but... In my opinion, it is the single greatest Christmas special ever made, and it was the 1978 uh, Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. Whoa. I'm liking the sound. Is Cookie Monster in it? Oh, Cookie yeah. Monster's got one of the three storylines, yeah. Whoa. All right. I don't believe I've seen that one. Okay, it, it is available on YouTube. I shouldn't say that probably because it'll get removed now, but um, it is the f- sappiest, most wonderful sweetest and most evil Christmas special you will ever see. Wow, that that's quite a twister. Because uh, big question is Oscar does the Grouch is the villain of piece. Uh, eat anything co- in it or does he just spray it all over the place after scrubbing it up in his mouth? Oh he eats. Eat? he eats. Does yes. he actually ingest it? Oh yeah. 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 Whoa, whoa, that's Going to and special effects there. You got three storylines going at the same time. Uh, one, well, two, and then one small Cookie Monster sidebar. But wow, two storylines. One of them is that they're both very well done. It's very sweet, very affectionate, but also very nasty. There's a there's a song in there called "I Hate Christmas," sung by Oscar the Grouch. Well, that doesn't surprise me. That one, yeah. And, uh, you know, let's just say, you know, Big Bird almost dies. No, 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 no. That's, oh. that's taking it too far. Oh, no, I'm telling you. This almost. is the kind of thing kids would sob at watching this. Die. I used to. Whoa. I mean, after that, I'd need about half an hour loop of Terrence and Philip. Oscar also, Oscar also <laughs> goes on a swearing jag that yeah. is censored by a passing subway train, but you could clearly see he's swearing. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> It's whoa, a wonder, whoa, whoa. but seriously, you should watch it. Both of you should watch it tonight. Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. It's only a little over an hour long. Probably the best Christmas special ever made. But can you reveal a guest star? No, there are no guest stars. It's just the actual cast of the show at the time. Well, wow, they managed to resist the temptation of guest stars on so their seventy-eight baby seventy-eight. Dead right. Yeah. Although it I mean, did, it did introduce the world to uh, Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad. There you go. I I think I think I'm still waiting to be introduced to it. Um, oh, it's it, a great song. It's a beautiful Christmas carol um, in Spanish. I mean, I know him for "Light My Fire." Yeah, you know. Yeah, which he, is superb. Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's a Christmas carol, uh, traditional in traditional Spanish Christmas carol. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, uh, you know, because Sesame Street, even back then, was all about being multiracial, multilingual, multicultural. Oh, it's when I was about eight years old, I learned how to go in and, in and out of a door. In exito and entrada. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I, I was Hispanic bilingual <laughs> at the age of eight in, in Norfolk in England. It was a big help to me. Look at this. we got to get back on topic. See, that's the problem when we all get together. It just... History ramblings really does become ramblings. <laughs> two times the guess, two times the digressions. Exactly. Damn right. We're liking that answer. So yes, my friend. So we've We're talked Dickens. That. What are some other really great holiday ghost stories? Does anybody have a nice holiday ghost story they just like to tell? Well, I think Ansel's got a, a real cracker with his wonderful voice to share. So if uh, yes, I've got I've, uh, I've got the signalman prepared for you, which strangely enough is a Dickens story. Um, I wanted to make sure that I uh, picked something that would uh, sort of resonate with those of us who are familiar with the Dickens Christmas Carol without retreading that same ground. So it's, be public uh, it's a really fascinating ghost story from from Dickens. Yeah. I, I'm relaxed. I I can go. I can go next, or shall we hear? We've had a build up now. And be public domain. And it's public domain. Yeah. Um, I also want yeah. to talk about uh, other Christmas movies. Now that we've talked about some classics that I discovered this year, uh, Santa Jaws, which is Santa wonderful. Jaws. Sure. Yes, wonderful film. Uh, wow. I think everyone. The true it spirit out. of Christmas is in Santa Jaws. Santa Jaws is wonderful. Um, you know, kind of going back to the ghost stories, but the horror of of Christmas, look how many Christmas horror movies there really are. A horror movie set at Christmas. Yeah. There's Mm. so many. But that comes back to the I do wonder how much of that, I mean, there's that wonderful BBC tradition of ghost shows and ghost stories that were produced around the Christmas Back um, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah uh, we had, uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, you know, when you see the wonderful M.R. James adaptations filmed in the, in the wilds of Norfolk, East Anglia, you know, I mean, Monty James, who is the master of the, the modern ghost story, he would he would be uh, on, on, on radio and he would be, uh, writing these stories published in magazines and books and they'd sneak them out just before Christmas, you know, and the performance would be over the radio and it, it, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Really. That's why we had Dracula at the beginning of the year as well to resurrect don't, that. Um... Don't. What? Call that Dracula. Actually, I had a really good conversation with Dave Gastoka. You should listen to the episode. I helped him write his next book. Well, that's true. Well, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful man. I don't, I don't diss anything that I'm talking about. The Gattis rubbish that they no, put. No, he was involved in. Oh, yeah, no, I think Dacre was involved in that. Well, they clearly didn't listen to Dacre then, did they? You um, can have, you, has, you can, you can he, have all. So, I mean, there are elements that are correct, but there are elements in there that really. Mark Gattis shouldn't be getting wrong. He knows his horror, and he knows the influences of Bram. I'm published on them. Dacre knows them as well. Of course he does. Other people that love the genre 
could help them produce a really good program. And I think rather like the the drama that they produced, it's a missed opportunity. You know, everybody looks back at the Louis Jordan as a really good adaptation, but it's very dated now. In, in, back in the 1970s, wonderful Frank Finlay in it. You know, absolutely superb. Great performances shot in Whitby. It had the atmosphere of the place. Or do you feel, Lauren or anybody, that that, that was a loyal reproduction of uh, a fantastic story that is Dracula? Oh, I don't think it was that loyal. No, it wasn't loyal at all. It wasn't meant to be loyalists. Why not? Why not do a loyal... And and you can use modern techniques in special effects and storytelling to really bring the Dracula story alive, you know? Well, there's only one reason I can think of. It's very difficult to engage an audience using the Victorian back setting these days. That would have to be 18 hours long. Yeah, they, they want they, something that connects to them. You can condense it. You don't need to change it. True. There is a, there are, you know, you can condense. Then, once you have done that, rather like the Hammer series of film, that all of these people must know, then guess what? The dust can be collected by somebody else, and it can be reanimated. I mean, I thought the guy that played Dracula looked really good. My God, you know, there were there were moments there. Uh, it was Christmas. It was like Christopher Lee plus, you know, it was, it was magical to see that. But I thought, well, what a wasted opportunity. Why not establish the characters in, in a pretty loyal version of the Dracula story? Then bring him back. And then guess what? You can do all of this crazy stuff on these crazy journeys. And, and take him on a number of, uh, ep- uh, you know, feature-length episodes. But if you got the chance to make Dracula, you know, if, I was disappointed. I wanted, when the film Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, I wanted to see Bram Stoker's Dracula. I didn't see it. I no. saw a different story told in a film. That Would featured- you like a very pragmatic, unfortunate reason for that? Yes, please, answer. It's, it's because of, of legalities in United States copyright law. Yes. Bram Stoker's Dracula in public domain. It is. Dracula, yes. as was produced pictures, is no longer in the public domain. So if you want to produce Dracula, you have to make it legally distinct and uh, different from the property that is Dracula. And they're trying to refresh their monster-verse these days with the return of Godzilla and the mummy and uh, Gilman, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And so they're, they're being increasingly litigious. Universal is very protective. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the reason behind that I was, said, is uh, that Bram yes, didn't get around to protecting his work in America because he became ill. That's the whole reason behind that. Mm-hmm. And universal um, was, smart enough or sleazy enough depending on how you look at it that when they bought the rights to the stage play of dracula which was initially what they were going to film they copyrighted it mm-hmm. and because 
was it John Balderstaff's adaptation? Either way. I think. Yeah. yeah, they, because it was so different than the novel, which it had to be because of copyright in England, they copyrighted it. So pretty much everything associated with the character of Dracula now is owned by Universal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. But on that note, we got to wrap this up because we're going to have story time coming up in a little bit with Ansel. And we're going to do another big, nice episode of all of us getting together in the new year coming up soon. But I want uh, Ansel and Neil. I'll let Neil go first. Um, just give some like, last little holiday wishes and whatever you want to say for the holidays. Oh my goodness! Well, I shall have to come seconds. back. <laughs> That's my Larry King. I shall share you a ghost story when I return. Uh, I'd like to send friends and family all over the world, but particularly friends in the states, every good wish for for Christmas and the New Year. Take care and be kind to each other. All right, Ansel, and you. Um, just as the. As the winter draws on and the cold draws in, remember that the warmth that we keep together doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be together. Um, whatever your tradition is, this is still a special time and has been for time immemorial. Uh, we can find new ways to celebrate the winter and find our way in, into spring uh, together, even if we aren't physically there. And Lauren, your turn. Oh, goodness, I can't follow that. Wonderful. Um, That's why well, I'm not like going to... now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say thank you for everybody that has listened and has supported us. We have had a remarkable year of podcasting, mostly due to the pandemic. We've made wonderful good friends, and I hope that they continue to stay healthy and enjoy the holidays as best as they can. I guess that means it's me, huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, I do enough talking throughout the year, so I'm just going to say, you know, everybody listening, thank you so much and have a wonderful holiday season. Be kind to everybody. Get a hold of the people that you love. Tell them you love them. Say hi. Everybody get along. Try to be friendly. And especially Neil, Ansel, and Lauren, thank you so much for being on tonight. As a special gift for you kitties out there, we're going to hear one of the great voice actors in America doing a little Dickens. <laughs> The Signalman by Charles Dickens Hello, hello there. When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box, with a flag in his hand, furled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood, on the top of the steep cutting nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not have said for my life what. But I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed, down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I had shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. Halloa! Below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak with you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon, with a repetition of my idle question. 
Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation, and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back, as though it had force to draw me down. When such vapor as rose to my height from this rapid train had passed me, and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again, and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause, during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point at my level, some two or three hundred yards distant. I called down to him, All right! and made for that point. There, by dint of looking closely about me, I found a rough, zigzag descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep, and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin, and that left elbow rested on his right hand, crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way, and stepping out upon the level of the railroad, and drawing nearer to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man, with a dark beard, and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as ever I saw. On either side a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky. The perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon the shorter perspective in the other direction terminating in a gloomy red light, and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel, in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot, that it had an earthy, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it, that it struck chill to me, as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life, and who being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look toward the red light near the tunnel's mouth, and looked all about it, as if something were missing from it and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, Don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes of the saturnine face, 
that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. In my turn I stepped back, but in making the action I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. You look at me, I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There, I said, intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound. Yes? My good fellow, what should I do there? However, be that as it may, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I am as sure I may. His manner cleared, like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness, and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Yes, that was to say he had enough responsibility to bear, but exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him, and of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none. To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then, was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form, and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals, and tried a little algebra. But he was, as he had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him when on duty always to remain in that channel of damp air, and could he never rise into the sunshine from between those high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions there would be less upon the line than under others, and the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows, but being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with its dial, face, and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well-educated, and I hoped I might say without offense, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of such incongruity in such wise would rarely be found wanting among large bodies of men, that he had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and that he knew it was so more or less in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy, and had attended lectures. But he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed, and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another. All that I have here condensed, he said in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the word sir from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth. 
as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell, and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed, and make some verbal communication to the driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable, and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, but for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face towards the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out toward the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him, which I had remarked without being able to define when we were so far asunder. Said I when I rose to leave him, You almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge I said it to lead him on. I believe I used to be so, he rejoined in the low voice in which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir. I am troubled. He would have recalled the words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. If ever you make me another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning, and I shall be on again at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me and went out the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said in his peculiar low voice, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you are at the top, don't call out. His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me, but I said no more than, very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, Aloha, below there tonight? Heaven knows, said I. I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. Admit those were the very words I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason. What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in a supernatural way, no? He wished me good night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails, with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me, until I found the path. It was easier to mount than descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom, with his white light on. "'I have not called out,' I said, when we came close together. "'May I speak now?' "'By all means, sir.' "'Good night, then, and here's my hand.' "'Good night, sir, and here's mine.' With that we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire, 
I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening, and that troubles me. That mistake? No, that's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved, violently waved, this way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlit night, said the man, I were sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Halloa, below there. I started up, looked from that door, and saw this someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed harsh with shouting, and it cried, Look out, look out. And then again, Halloa, below there, look out. I caught up my lamp, turned on the red, and ran towards the figure. Colin, what's wrong? What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it, and I had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I? No. I ran into the tunnel, five hundred yards. I stopped, and I held my lamp above my head, and saw the figures of the measured distance and saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence to the place upon me. And I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it, and I came down again, and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back. Both ways. All well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight, and how that figure's originating in the disease of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom had become conscious of the nature of their affliction and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to an imaginary cry, said I, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low, and the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wire. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while, and he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who so often passed long winter nights there, alone and watching. But he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened, and within ten hours the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined, that this was a remarkable coincidence, calculated deeply to impress his mind but it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidences did continually occur, and they must be taken into account in dealing with such a subject. Though to be sure, I must admit, I added, 
for though I saw that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me, men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life. He again begged to remark that he had not finished. I again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions. This, he said, laying his hand upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with callow eyes, was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed, and I had recovered from the surprise and shock, when one morning, as the day was breaking, I, standing at the door, looked towards the red light, and saw the spectre again. He stopped, with a fixed look at me. Did it cry out? No, it was silent. Did it wave its arm? No. It leaned against the shaft of light, with both hands before the face, like this. Once more I followed the action with my eyes. It was an action of mourning. I have seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me, and the ghost was gone. But... Nothing followed, nothing came of this. He touched me on the arm with his forefinger, twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day, as a train came out the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, stop. He shut off and put his brake on. But the train drifted past here, hundred and fifty yards or more. I ran after it, and, as I went along, heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments, and was brought in here, and laid down on this floor between us. Involuntarily I pushed my chair back, as I looked from the boards at which he pointed to himself. True, sir, true. Precisely as it happened, so I tell you. I could think of nothing to say, to any purpose, and my mouth was very dry. The wind and the wires took up the story with a long, lamenting wail. He resumed, No, sir, mark this, and judge how my mind is troubled. The spectre came back a week ago. Ever since it has been there, now and again by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of, for God's sake, clear the way. Then he went on, I have no peace or rest for it. It calls to me, for many minutes together in an agonized manner. Below there, look out, look out, it stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. I caught at that. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening when I was here, and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see, said I. How your imagination misleads you? My eyes were on the bell, and my ears were open to the bell, and if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times. No, nor at any other time except when it was rung in the natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. We have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. We have never confused the spectre's ring with a man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else, and I have not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. 
I don't wonder that you failed to hear it. But I heard it. And did the spectre seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times, he repeated firmly. Both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his underlip as though he were somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There were the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? I asked him, taking particular note of his face. His eyes were prominent and stained, but not very much more so, perhaps, than my own had been when I had directed them earnestly towards the same spot. No, he answered. It is not there. Agreed, said I. We went in again, shut the door, and resumed our seats. I was thinking how best to improve this advantage, if it might be called one, when he took up the conversation in such a matter-of-course way, so assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. "'By this time you will fully understand it, sir,' he said. "'That what troubles me so dreadfully is the question. What does the spectre mean?' I was not sure, I told him, that I did fully understand. "'What is it warning against?' he said, ruminating with his eyes on the fire and only by times turning them on me. What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It's not to be doubted this third time after what's gone before, but surely there's a cruel haunting on me. What can I do? He pulled out his handkerchief and wiped down the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraph danger on either side of me, or on both, I can give no reason for it, he went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. They'd think I was mad. This is the way it would work. Message. Danger. Take care. Answer. What danger? Where? Message. I don't know. But for God's sake, take care. They would displace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man oppressed beyond endurance by an unintelligible responsibility involving life. When first it stood under the danger light, he went on, putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples in an extremity of feverish distress, why not tell me where that accident was to happen? If it must happen, why not tell me how it could be averted? If it could have been averted, when on its second coming it hid its face, why not tell me instead, she's going to die, let them keep her at home? If it came on those two occasions only to show that its warnings were true, and not to prepare me for a third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake, as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well. 
and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty. Though he did not understand these confounding appearances, in this effort I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm. The occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands upon his attention, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration how ought I to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure. I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact. But how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Though in a subordinate position, still he held a most important trust, and would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with himself and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in these parts, and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off for an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down, when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on and half an hour back, and it would then be time for me to go to my signalman's box. Before pursuing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and there was a little group of other men standing at short distance, to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, had been made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a flashing, self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there, and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I had descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. "'What's the matter?' I asked the man. "'Signal-man killed this morning, sir. Not the man belonging to that box.' "'Yes, sir. Not the man I know.' "'You will recognize him, sir, if you knew him,' said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising the end of the tarpaulin. "'For his face is quite composed.' "'Oh, how did this happen? How did this happen?' "'He was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better, but somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just a broad day. He had struck the light and had a lamp in his hand, and the engine came out the tunnel 
His back was towards her and she cut him down. That man drove her and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man who wore a rough, dark dress stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Come in round the curve of the tunnel, sir, he said. I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him down a perspective glass. There were no time to check speed and I knew him to be very careful. As he didn't seem to be taking heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him and called him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, below there, look out, look out, for God's sake, clear the way. I started. Ah, it were a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling him. I put this arm before me eyes not to see, and I waved this arm to the last, but it were no use. Without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of its curious circumstances more than the other, I may, in closing it, point out the coincidence that the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signalman had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind to the gesticulation he had imitated. <laughs> I bet you're going to start having a go at mince pies now, aren't you?